Hey, we're in 2 Kings 18, all right? 2 Kings 18. Uh, again, turn there. Let me explain where we're at, man. We are going to be done with this in just a few weeks. We've been going through the, the Samuels and Kings uh, for about a year and a half. The hope for us was to get really familiar with the Old Testament uh, history, with the nation of Israel and Judah, kind of a big picture, but also to kind of zoom in and be like, I think I've heard these names before, but who are they? What do they do? When did they do it? Um, there's gospel elements and threads that we try to like follow along throughout the Old Testament. We want to read with the perspective that Jesus gave us. Jesus in John 5, 39 says, when you read the scriptures, they testify of me. So we look for Jesus in this. What is Jesus doing? How is he working? How does this speak of the gospel or our need for the gospel? If you're with us last week, this was very significant. We just looked at the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. The northern kingdom of Israel, remember 10 tribes up in the north. We have a picture of the map. Uh, if you guys remember, they'd never had one good king, Israel. So when you hear the word Israel, sometimes we think all 12 tribes. Uh, after Solomon, it broke up into the north and south. North is called Israel. South is called Judah. Ten tribes in the north, two tribes primarily in the south. The idea was uh, the, the north never had one king that was like, we're going to follow Yahweh. Not once. Only evil king after evil king. We saw the end of Israel. Now here in this chapter, 2 Kings 18, it's kind of flashing back. It's now focusing on uh, the king of King Hezekiah. And King Hezekiah, we know, is a good king. The kings in the south, out of all 20 kings, about five kings were just sold out for God. Hezekiah goes down as one of the greatest, if not potentially the greatest king, a king who's just sold out for God. He trusts in the Lord. Um, there's a lot of scripture and a lot of text dedicated to Hezekiah. Before we jump into this, um, what I love even about this, and just kind of we'll back up or see this, um, there's so much modern day history around the person of Hezekiah. You know, in 2015, we found seals with Hezekiah's name on it. I believe over 30 of them in the city of David area in Jerusalem. There's a picture, I think, of it. You can see it looks like a little coin, but it's a seal uh, with his name inscribed on it. There's a lot around this person, Hezekiah. Uh, actually, in 1830, there was like these clay prism tablets that were found in Nineveh. Uh, in 1830, they found these tablets called the Annals of uh, Sennacherib. He was the king of Assyria, and he actually writes about um, his interactions with Hezekiah, how he surrounded Hezekiah and Jerusalem and Judea or Judah, how he surrounded them with his army. So this is actually, in 1830, they're digging around Nineveh at like a dump site, basically an ancient dump site, kind of digging around, find these clay prism tablets. There's three of them. You can go to the British Museum uh, in London. You can go to Chicago. There's like three of these tablets that tell the story specifically of Hezekiah and what happened. And it's fascinating. You can read these tablets and read the scriptures. And obviously, there's some differences because you see God's perspective in the scriptures. But the details are like spot on. And so I, I love the story of Hezekiah. There's just so much around him. Now, I, I say all this because um, Hezekiah was a guy where the people at their lowest point really needed someone to step up and say, you know what? We're not doing it this way anymore. My dad, Ahaz, wicked. We're not going to do it this way anymore. We're going to seek God. We're going to trust God. Basically, Hezekiah led one of the most massive revivals in Judah. Hezekiah was a part of this great work of God. And so the title today is simply Revival and Opposition. Revival and Opposition. We're going to see like elements of revival, um, and then we're going to see immediately after revival, or as revival's happening, really, there's opposition from Assyria. So the north was just attacked by the Assyrians, and they're going to be taken prisoners into Assyria. Imagine your brothers. They're gone. Like, they're gone. 
the king of Assyria, he takes them. Most of them are taken to Assyria um, partway through uh, Hezekiah's kingship. They're gone. And he's going, hey, we're not going to follow. We're going to serve God. They didn't serve God. Our brothers didn't serve God, but we're, we're going to serve God. So Hezekiah, man, goes down as just one of the greatest kings that ever existed. We need Hezekiahs today. We need people who say, it doesn't matter what the world's serving, what the world's worshiping, we're going to serve God. We're going to trust him with everything we have. Hezekiah just goes down as a great man that way. So um, here's what we're going to do. You can see this. I think the, we'll put the scripture text back up here. Um, there is a lot of scripture dedicated to Hezekiah. This Sunday, Hezekiah part one. Next Sunday, Hezekiah part two. You do see him filled with pride at one point, but you do see him repent as well. So that'll be next week. This week, we're just looking at basically this guy's legit, man. Like what he does, how he does it, godly, sold out for God. Um, he, he serves the Lord really well. So I want to read 2 Kings 18. What we're going to do is this, just so I can explain it. We're going to read eight verses, get an overview, and I'm going to do my best. Because look at 2 Chronicles, if you see the text. Uh, 29, 30, 31, 32. There's a lot more text in 2 Chronicles about what we're reading here in chapter 18 and 19. So just so you know, we're not going to read all of it. I'm going to do my job to like kind of make this a puzzle and be like, look what he did, look what happened, look what happened, look what happened. You guys cool? You cool with that? We're not going to read eight chapters today. I know you want to, but uh, we're just going to read a few verses and then we're going to paint the big picture of this guy, Hezekiah. Cool? Sound good? Let's do it. Second Kings 18, verse 1. Let's read about him. It says, In the third year of Hoshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, the son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abby, the daughter of Zechariah. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, according to all that David, his father, had done. He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. And he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called uh, Nehushtan. He trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord, and he did not depart from following him, but kept the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord was with him wherever he went out. He prospered. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. He struck down the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory, from, from watchtower to fortified city. Yo, this guy's a legend. Um, by the way, I know you guys, I've already said this, but when you have so much scripture, like eight chapters alone here, and you're going to see more next week, just dedicated to this guy. Um, history wants us, God wants us to remember this guy, who he is, what he's done, how he served the Lord. He experienced revival in his land. Really, that's what we're going to be looking at. Just like these elements, these common elements, nothing insanely profound, but it led to just mass revival in his land. Um, so why don't we just pray and just ask the Lord to just speak and move in this time. Let's do that. Father, we just want to say thank you for the fact that we get to gather, we get to open up your book. And God, we ask that we would not just read it, but we ask that we would, um, by your grace and by your Holy Spirit, live it out. That what people experience then, just this outpouring of your grace and favor, just revival on the land. God, we ask that you do that again, whether that's here, different parts of our globe. Jesus, we ask that you raise up right now men and women who are dedicated fully to you, that we'd see people not be about some secondary issue, but about you, God. That the gospel of Jesus would be what motivates our hearts God, that we just see people come to know you, 
have eternities and lives changed. And uh, Lord, we do ask that what we learn from this guy, Hezekiah, what he did, how he did it, Lord, that we'd seek you in a very similar way. Let it just be not just said of him. Um, so Lord, we need you and just ask that you speak in your wonderful name. Amen. You know, it seems like um, whenever you try to basically reform a part of your life, or like you, you maybe a New Year's resolution, like I want to change in this way, it seems like you're always met with opposition. You know, it's funny how the day or days, and it's not so often, I'm not trying to, but the days I'm like, you know, what, I'm going to fast today. Everyone's like, hey, here's free food. I'm like, why today? Why free food today? Like, why is it always, it literally, like, I've never, like, it's like, oh, I have, like, amazing steak I just made. you want it? I'm like, what is, are you Satan? What is this? It's very bizarre, right? Or you might decide, like, I'm going to go to the gym today. I'm going to start working out. And you go, and the gym's closed. You're like, well, I guess God's will for me not to work out. Like, it's just funny how whenever we decide for there to be, like, reform, we're always met with some sort of opposition. And that's what happens to Hezekiah. Listen, Hezekiah is just a different dude. When we read about five good kings, Asa, Jehoshaphat, great name, by the way, Jotham, uh, Hezekiah, Josiah, five kings that were like, okay, God, we're going to serve you with everything we got. This guy got to be part of an amazing revival. You know, 120 years after this guy in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel would be a prophet who'd be basically walking sadly with Hezekiah and the people's great, great, great grandkids. Like he'd be walking from Judah to Babylon. The book of Ezekiel is fascinating. It's basically they're going from their land to an unknown land. They're, it's like that's like it transitions into the book of Daniel. And I just kind of want you to see scriptures that way. But you see Ezekiel basically going, we don't have anyone who's willing to stand in the gap. We don't have anyone like that anymore. In Ezekiel 22, here's what it says. I want to read it. He says, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach. The gap is a better word. Stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found none. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation upon them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have returned their way upon their heads, declares the Lord God. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel's prophesying, he's going, God, God was looking for a man or woman who just stand in the gap. Stand in the gap. The idea of this phrase, maybe you heard that phrase, stand in the gap. It's an amazing phrase. The idea was, back then specifically, almost everyone had some sort of wall protecting them or their land or the most important part of their land. There's always some sort of wall. In this wall, there may be a hole or a breach. There'd be some way that the enemy would get in. Because maybe somehow there's a hole in the wall. And the idea was, God's like, I need a man who's willing to put his body and life on the line and saying, uh, the enemy's not getting in. I'm going to stand in the gap. Not, not in my house, not in my family, not in my church, not in my, like, I'm looking for men who would stand in the gap. And basically, in Ezekiel, he's like, there's no one. God's looking for people to stand in the gap. Hezekiah was that guy. Hezekiah is the guy who's like, I'm going to stand in the gap. Think about this. The, your northern brothers, Israel, 10 tribes, some of the strongest warriors in Israel, in the north, are taken captive by the king of Assyria. Somehow Jerusalem, and even historically speaking, yes, Hezekiah gives gold eventually to the king of Assyria, um, but they never actually breach the inner walls of Jerusalem. This is fascinating. Just history speaking, biblically speaking, this guy in a sense did stand in the gap. Yes, he got a lot of other territories of Judah, but not Jerusalem, not the house of God. I mean, Hezekiah is just a great, and during that time, it's not even that. It's not just he's keeping away the enemy. He's leading the people through like a spiritual revival during that time. So there's revival and there's opposition. And that's what I want us to see because anytime we're like, God, I want to live for you, just be ready for immediate opposition. As soon as you're like, I'm going to start reading and praying. Like as soon as you do that, you're going to go to pray and your phone's going to ring a million times. Like we just, this happens over and over again, in small ways and big ways. 
And so there's this idea of like, I want there to be revival in my land, in my heart, in my life. It doesn't start just also in a big picture. It starts individually. But as soon as you start seeking that, just be ready, be aware that there's going to be opposition. This is the big theme from all of these chapters that I've, I could point out to you. So I want to do my best to like show you the revival and show you the opposition. You guys ready? Because this idea of there, there's elements of revival that like no one can force revival. We get that, right? Like we can't. It's, it is bizarre. Like, I do love the idea of, like, revival meetings. I love the heart posture. The heart posture is like, God, we're going to seek you. We're going to pray. We're going to worship you. We're going to repent. We're going to confess our sins. We're going to disown our sins. God, we're going to seek you with everything. Like, that's a beautiful spirit. But obviously, we can't manipulate the heart of God. We can't manipulate him. But I do think there are certain heart postures God's, like, looking for, for us, for him to pour out his favor in just a unique way. We saw that recently in Kentucky in a small college. Where it's just like this idea of like, God, I'm just going to turn my heart towards you. This is not for show. This is not for Instagram. This is not for any other reason other than I want to be connected close to you. I want to experience revival in my life. And so there's these elements of revival. So um, let me just also make sure this is really clear. Um, none of these things I'm going to go over with you guys today are not going to be like, well, I didn't know that. It's usually things like we know, but we just don't live out or do. And I want you to just please take this to heart for a second. Um, Tim Keller, you guys know I love him. This guy, he wrote a lot about revival. And he basically goes, revival doesn't make sense. It does not make sense. Here's what he said. I thought this was fascinating. He says, all revivals are seasons in which the ordinary operations of the Holy Spirit are intensified manyfold. Please, please hear that. Revival is just ordinary things that we're supposed to do as Christians intensified. It, like, it, when, you see, when they're praying, like they're praying, but they're praying. <laughs> they're worshiping, but they're worshiping. They're confessing sin, but they're confessing sin. Do we get, whenever you see like revival happening, it's like, wait a second, these are things we're prescribed to do. Like, yeah, but it's just done in an intensified, Holy Spirit-led, beautiful way, genuine way. So the points I'm going to go over, you're not going to be like, wow, I've never heard that before. But the, the hope is not just to go over these as like checklist points, but hopefully there's a sense where like, Lord, take these ordinary things you've given us and intensify them. You guys with me? I don't know how to, no, I can't force the heart or hand of God. It's like, God, part your spirit in a unique way here or somewhere else. But God has given us these disciplines or graces of the spirit. And revival seems to happen when we're doing those in a unified way, in a genuine heart, with obedience. And God's like, okay, I'm going to show up. You seek me, you'll find me. So ready? Elements of revival. Here's what we see. First one's this. We see the removal of sin. The removal of sin. Verse 1 through 8, we saw that. In 2 Chronicles 29, we see that. The first element of revival, he's like, yo, we got to get rid of these high places. That phrase high places means normally in the land, and you can see this in Greece today, in Israel today, if there's a hill, there most likely was a temple or some sort of sacrifice on that hill. The high places were a way for people to say, we're going to worship our God on this hill or this mountain. Our God's high, your God's low. There's a way for them to worship their false God. Here's what it says in verse 4. This is fascinating. It says, he, Hezekiah, removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah. Um, if you guys have been reading this with us the last couple months, maybe you haven't, it's okay. But you, you'll see these phrases. The king um, did right, but he did not remove the high places. Here's a guy that actually says he did remove the high places. So when you're reading Hezekiah, if you're like, if you've been reading this with us, you'd actually, that'd stand out to so you. Like, whoa, 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 this guy's different. Yeah, this guy's different. All the other kings left the high places. He's like, I'm tearing down these high places. These are, not, these are not the places dedicated to God. He does this in 2 Chronicles 29 as well. Here's what it says, 2 Chronicles 29, and here's where we're going to kind of like combine the scriptures. You can just read it up here. 
It says this. He says, hear me, Levites. Speaking to the Levites. He says, consecrate yourselves and consecrate the house of the Lord, the God of your fathers, and carry out the filth from the holy place. For our fathers have been unfaithful and have done what was evil in the sight of the Lord our God. He's like, yo, it starts here. Peter says it in this way in 1 Peter 4. He says, judgment begins in the house of God. It's crazy how so often we think the problem's out there. Oh, Hollywood, it's so wicked. Like, sure. But it starts here. <laughs> this idea of revival, we're like, we want it to start in Hollywood. Why would, no, why would it start there? It starts, in the, it starts here. It starts internally. It starts on an individual basis, and I think collectively as well, of course. But sometimes we're always like, the problem's out there. And it's like, no, no. So Hezekiah's guy's like, we're going to move the high places from our land. Hey, he, it loses the word filth. There's filth in the house of God. We need to get rid of it. Basically, the first element of revival is this heart of like, God, you are holy. We want to be holy like you. We, we want to be set apart, consecrate. We want to be different. We, we don't want to be just like the world. We want to look different, be different. And there's this intense sense of like, God, I want to be right with you. A.W. Tozer, who just goes down as one of the greatest authors and writers of revival, he says, God, uh, get, thirst, get thoroughly dissatisfied with yourself. Complacency is the deadly enemy of spiritual progress. He's like, there should be some element where you're like, I'm just not satisfied with this thing in my life that has taken God away from me or taken me away from God. Like this thing, this, this characteristic, this go-to, like he's like, you cannot be satisfied with that thing that's just keeping you from the Lord. Here's what I want to point out. Just stay with me for a second. Jeremiah, the book of Jeremiah, a couple of different kings later, we'll see Jeremiah soon. Jeremiah comes on the scene and commends Hezekiah for this time. And he actually points something out, I think, fascinating. It's Jeremiah 26, 18. So here's Jeremiah, a prophet, who was a prophet to Jehoiakim and some of those kings. Jeremiah says this about Hezekiah. He says, Micah, remember the book of Micah? All these books go together. Micah of Moresheth prophesied in the days of Hezekiah, king of Judah, and said to all the people of Judah, thus says the Lord of hosts, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house of a wooden height. Did Hezekiah, king of Judah, and all Judah put him to death? No, did he not fear the Lord and entreat the favor of the Lord? And did not the Lord relent of the disaster that he'd pronounced against them? But we are about to bring great disaster upon ourselves. This is fascinating. The book of Micah says judgment is coming to Israel and Judah. Israel, judgment comes to Israel, the north. To Judah, God relented, it says. Why? Because this guy goes, no, no, we're going to seek God. We're going to seek the favor of God. Here's what I love, and this is so cool. I love that Jeremiah is quoting the book of Micah. That's just so cool. Like modern day contemporaries, like, you know, my buddy Micah, the prophet, he's going to write a book one day. Um, But I just love it. He's quoting Micah, and he's saying, no, no, as soon as Micah prophesied this, he goes, Hezekiah took it to heart. So Hezekiah, here's this idea of like, there's sin in the land, and it's like, it starts with us. Like, he took it personally. He's like, I'm over this. We, we need to take this serious. This is so important because so often I feel like I'll meet with Christians, talk with Christians, and be like, oh my gosh, Josiah, that message is so good for my friend. I'm like, oh cool, who's this ominous friend? You know, like, what about, what about you? Like, it's just so funny how we do that. It's so good for someone else. Hezekiah is like, no, no, Micah prophesied there's judgment coming. This is for me. Let's, I'm going to take this serious. And the Lord relented. Obviously, judgment does come to Judah. It comes to Judah during Jeremiah's day. But I love that Micah says something and Hezekiah takes it to heart. I love how the Bible's connected this way. I love he's like, there's, there's Isaiah on the scene, Micah on the scene. Hezekiah is just like, okay, God, you say this, I'm going I'm to take this to heart. And he, he fights to remove sin from, from him. Here's what Warren Wearsby says about this. He says, if we are to have revival in the Lord's work, we must begin with cleansing. 
must begin with cleansing. Over the years, individuals and churches can gradually accumulate a great deal of religious rubbish while ignoring the essentials of spiritual worship. It's not by doing some unique thing that we experience new blessing from the Lord, but by returning to the old things and doing them well. Is that not it? That's what we're talking about. Just returning to the old things. How do we experience revival? Just do the old things that God has given us. Do those things well. We're not going to reinvent the wheel here. The first thing is just like, let's remove the, let's get rid of the sin, the filth from the house. That's like where he starts. It's unbelievable. I love this about him. I love this is how it begins. It actually says this in verse four. I do want to add commentary on this because I think this is important. Maybe you caught this in, in 2 Kings 18.4. It says, he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. Okay, right in your Bible, Numbers 21. Remember, you remember that story? This is a story that's, so as a parent, I got to be careful not to use this because I have. Uh, it's a story where in Numbers 21, the people are complaining. They're complaining against everything. God, manna, why am I in the desert? You know, this food from heaven. I don't want this food from heaven. And God's like, you want something to complain about? I'll give you something to complain about. And sends fiery serpents. Okay, but that's kind of how I view the story. And so basically, they're complaining, they're complaining, they're complaining. God sends fiery serpents. They're biting the people. They're dying off. If you guys remember the story, Moses makes a bronze serpent, puts it on the pole, and says, look to the bronze serpent, and you'll be saved. You'll be healed. You won't die. Obviously, that story is not about a bronze serpent. John 3, Jesus says that bronze serpent that Moses lifted up, me. Meaning, think about it, write down this, if you remember this, the bronze serpent. Bronze or brass was a symbol of judgment. Just scripturally speaking, brass, judgment. Bronze, judgment. Sin, serp, serpent, sin. Judgment, sin. Sin, judged. The idea was this thing that is inflicting pain and causing your death, this thing has been judged. The sin has been judged. The bronze serpent on the pole, stay with me, the bronze serpent on the pole, this judged sin, if you look at it in faith, you will be healed. Jesus says, if I am lifted up like that bronze serpent, all men will be healed, will be saved. The idea is just this. We look to that in faith. We look to that in faith, just like they did. We look to the cross. We look at Jesus, lift it up and say, Jesus, you took my sin. You took my judgment. I, I was bitten by sin, but rally, you took that on. I look to you in faith, and now I'm healed. The way they looked at that brass serpent in the wilderness in Numbers 21 to be healed, that's the way I look to you. I look to you to be healed. Now, here's the problem. Here in 2 Kings 18, this is fascinating to me because it's the only place that mentions this. They kept that brass serpent for a long time. I mean, look, that's Moses. They kept this brass serpent for a long time. They're offering idols to it, or offering uh, sacrifices to it. That's fascinating to me. This brass serpent for hundreds of years is just in their land. And they're like, remember that thing that saved us? That's the thing. And it just became a relic. And I love how Rearsby connects that to just it's religious rubbish. It's like, it's so weird how sometimes we, we look to certain relics. Like, it's not that cross we wear or, you know, you really see this in Catholicism, but this idea of, like, some sort of relic in faith or you hold on to. No, no, we're not claiming, we're not clinging to some relic. We're clinging to Jesus and who he is and what he's done for us. And this idea of keeping relics is like, what are you doing? You're missing the point. It's not about this relic. What are you, what are you guys doing? So you see he's, like, tearing down the high places. He gets rid of that brass serpent back from Moses' days. He's like, no, we're going to trust in the Lord. And it uses that so much over and over again. Number two is this. Here's what we see. How do we experience revival? Notice this, and this will be really quick. It's just he held fast. He trusted the Lord over and over again. Um, this guy just goes down and is like, okay, I'm going to trust you. The enemy actually makes fun of him. The enemy, we'll see in a little bit, goes, you trust the Lord. The Lord's not going to be there for you. Like Hezekiah just goes, I don't care. All I know is I'm going to trust the Lord in this moment. It says this in verse 5. Listen, listen how it describes him. Verse 5. It says, he trusted in the Lord, the God of Israel, so that there was none like him among the kings of Judah after him, nor among those who were before him. For he held fast to the Lord. He did not depart from following him, but he kept his commandments that the Lord commanded Moses. By the way, I don't want to just read that too fast. Please, please hear that. 
Like that, that verse, verse five and six, gosh, if that was said about us, man, he trusted the Lord. He kept the commandments of his God. He held fast to the Lord. He sought the Lord. What a beautiful definition of your life. Imagine putting your name in there, your name, trusted in the Lord, held fast to the Lord, sought after the Lord. I believe that this guy is part of a revival because he's just like, God, I trust you. I can't trust in anything else. I'm not going to trust in anything else. Though the people of Israel in the north were trusting other nations to come and rescue them, no, no, we're going to trust in you, God. We're going to trust in you. I'll put the verses up here, just some phrases with quotes, if you can see that, guys. It says, he trusted in the Lord, removed the high places, held fast to the Lord, kept the commandments. God was with him and he prospered. He's the first king to rebel against Assyria. He's the only king other than David to defeat the Philistines. I mean, this guy just goes down as a historic guy. Why? Because he just trusted the Lord. He just trusted the Lord. I don't want to, I don't think, listen, we can't complicate this. Um, I think to experience revival, we have to like genuinely hold fast and trust the Lord. Lord, I trust you. Where else can we go? You alone have the words of life. Where else can we go, God? Where else are we going to go? I trust you. There's nothing else out there that can meet the needs of my life or soul like you. I trust you. I'm in. I'm in. I'm surrounded by the enemy, but I'm in. I trust you, Lord. Listen, the first thing he did, remove sin. He held fast. He trusted the Lord. Here's the third thing. Um, we're going to see in Second Chronicles, this authentic worship just breaks out. Just a worship service, an incredible worship service. It's Second Chronicles 29. Are you guys still with me? Because remember, there's like eight chapters. I'm summarizing here, but you guys got this. Um, here's what's so beautiful about this. In Second Chronicles 29, verse 25, let's just put it up here. It says this, Hezekiah stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, harps, and lyres according to the commandment of David. The whole assembly worshiped, and the singers sang, and the trumpeters sounded. All this continued until the burnt offering was finished. When the offerings was finished, the king and all who were present with him bowed themselves and worshiped. And Hezekiah the king and the officials commanded the Levites to sing praises to the Lord, to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And they sang praises with gladness, and they bowed down and worshiped. Oh my goodness, there's so much good stuff here. It's like, okay, we're going to remove the sin. We're going to trust in him. We're going to worship now. We're going to offer sacrifices and we're going to sing. By the way, do you ever see this? I love this. Psalm 150 talks about this idea of worship. Like, hey, we use instruments. We use trumpets. We use instruments. We don't use trumpets here, but we use instruments. And I love that. It's like, we're going to sing to the Lord a new song. It says they're singing the Psalms of David and Asaph. About 73 of the 150 Psalms are written by David. Asaph, he wrote some as well, but I love that. They're singing scripture. How beautiful is that? Church, sing scripture. He's like, we're going to sing David's and Asaph Psalms. I, I want to say it again, sing scripture. There's something about doing that even with your kids. Find a verse and just make up a melody, man. I do it. It's fun. It's weird, but do it. Sing scripture. Get it within. There's something powerful about it. We're going to sing the Psalms of David and Asaph. There is authentic, listen, revival is breaking out. Obviously, what's a key component? Authentic worship. If there's going to be revival, there's going to be authentic worship. It says the whole assembly worshiped. Notice this phrase. I love this phrase. It says, they sung praises to the, um, it says, sorry, they sing praises with gladness and bowed down and worshiped. That, there's, there's this, I, I don't know, dichotomy of you're singing these praises with gladness. There's joy in your voice. I really do believe that our worship needs to encompass a lot of joy and gladness. And they bow down. That is so cool. This idea of like looking up and we're glad, and we're celebrating, and we're, God, I have a, a, you put a joyful song in my heart. I have something to rejoice about, but I'm also going to bow. There's this time and place to sing, like, with gladness, obviously, and also to bow. And I think worship encompasses both, and that is so beautiful. They're singing scripture, they're celebrating, they're bowing, 
I love, again, the Psalms. It talks about standing, sitting, kneeling, laying. They, our body is involved in worship. They're playing instruments. Okay, this is why we do this. This is why we use instruments. This is why we use our bodies. We're going, yes, Lord, I'm all in. I'm going to bow. I'm going to stand I'm in awe of you. There's so much beauty here. Again, revival breaks out during this time of worship. It's unbelievable. I love what Adrian Rogers, just a well-known pastor, said this. He says, here's revival. When the doors of the temple were open, when the house of God, the innermost person, was cleansed of the filthiness, when the blood of Jesus, typified by those animals, applied to that temple for forgiveness, then, dear friend, the people could not help but sing. The only response, the sacrifices are being offered again, the only response is we got to sing. I love that. Sometimes I think that's the only response we have. Rejoice always and everything give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. Like, there's just something about, you know what? We have something to sing about. I really do believe, like, um, I love this phrase, Christians are a singing people. When you think of world religions, when you think of world faith, there might be some common practices, meditation, things like that. There might be some common practices you can find. When you come to church, like, why do you guys sing? It's like, what is that? Like, what is that? Why is that a spiritual practice? We have something to sing about. Jesus is risen from the dead. Blood has been applied. If you believe on him, you will be saved. Your life today and forevermore is changed. We have something to sing about. Christians are a singing people, weirdly enough. You go to any part of the world, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, any continent, we just, we sing, man. Why? We have something to sing about. It's just, I think that this is a part of just, uh, listen, authentic worship is just a part of this revival. He's like, hey, we have something to worship. We have something to sing about. Get the people. Let's sing. Number four is this. What breaks out next after this worship, and this is going in order, in 2 Chronicles uh, 29, we see this. They serve willingly. They serve willingly. Just stay with me. This is cool. Uh, verse 34. 2 Chronicles 29, verse 34. We'll put it up here. It says, but the priests were too few. It's a good word. <laughs> the priests were too few, and they could not flay all the burnt offerings. I mean, priests were like butchers back then. You just got to understand that. So until the other priests had consecrated themselves, their brothers, the Levites, helped them until the work was finished. For the Levites were more upright in heart than the priests in consecrating themselves. Besides the great number of burnt offerings, there was the fat of the peace offerings, and there were the drink offerings for the burnt offerings. Thus, the service of the house of the Lord was restored. I love that. It's like, okay, they're confessing their sin, uh, they're worshiping God faithfully, they trust in him, and then it's like, we need to serve, and I love, there's not enough people. There's too few priests. The Levites, you guys know, are part of that, so the Levites could like join in. They might not have been an active priest at that point in time, like, we're going to join in, we're going to serve. I love this, because the New Testament uses this terminology for you today. It says you are part of a holy priesthood, all right? We are all a part of this holy priesthood, and it's basically saying, hey, uh, there's a need here, there's too few of the priests, we need more people to step up, and it says, thus the service of the house of the Lord was restored. The idea is this. Um, during revival, people serve willingly. All right, this is not a plea to serve. It's a, ser it's a plea to serve willingly. <laughs> I love that. It's like God has so transformed our hearts, we will willingly serve. How could we not? There's a need? Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll set, our, set ourselves apart and we'll, we'll serve. We'll be a part of this. Again, this is how you know when someone's heart has genuinely, I think, been just uh, moved by God. It's, listen, anyone can serve. I get that. But when you're serving willingly, you're serving gladly. This is not like, a, how do we twist people's arms to serve? It's just like, no, God, you've been so good. We're gonna, there's a need. There's too few priests, that phrase. Okay, we will serve. Listen, I love this church. We need people who serve from just a pure heart, willing heart. God is not, doesn't want to force any of it. 
He, he wants it to be like, I want to be a part of this. I get to be part of this. So I'm not going to make a plea for kids ministry, even though that'd be great. Um, but we'll move on. I promise I won't mention kids ministry, even though you can serve on Sunday mornings. Um, <laughs> I'm kidding. But I love this. They serve lonely. The next thing that, the major thing, if you would, in 2 Chronicles 29, the next chapter is 2 Chronicles 30. And again, um, the, the author of the Chronicles, he's like going more into detail of the revival than 2 Kings. And here's, chapter 30 is basically dedicated to this. We must reinstitute Passover. So here's the fifth thing. They celebrate the gospel. They celebrate the gospel. In 2 Chronicles 30 verse 1, it says, Hezekiah, he sent to all of Israel and Judah and wrote letters, also to Ephraim and Manasseh, that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to keep the Passover to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the next thing, Hezekiah's like, yo guys, like we're worshiping, we're offering sacrifices, the burnt offering, the wave offering, the peace offering, all these, uh, uh, yes, we're doing that. But no, we haven't done in a long time, Passover. We need Passover again. If you guys know Passover, that was a time like once a year to set aside like a week to say, God, we're going to say, um, we're going to remember how you delivered us from the nation of Israel and how you really brought us on this journey into the land we're in now. But we're going to celebrate the fact that you passed over the sins of your people, that we deserve death. The firstborn was going to die unless blood was applied. But because blood was applied to the doorpost, because blood was applied, the angel of death passes over. And he's like, we need to celebrate that. We need to offer this, the Passover sacrifice. Here's what I love. The Passover for them is what the gospel is for us. The Passover is this idea that we deserve death, but blood has been applied, so now we live. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. This is the gospel according to Paul, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. Uh, Paul says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. I love this. Paul's like the Passover lamb, man, that's a beautiful picture of Jesus. Because Jesus was, Jesus' innocent life, because his blood was shed, that blood is applied to our life and God passes over our sins. And he goes, they're celebrating the gospel. This is so important. Um, it's very easy for the gospel, the good news of Jesus to become old news. I beg and plead, it cannot be old news. It has to be good news, new news. Make it new today. I, I wrote it this way because literally everyone says this ever, but literally everyone goes down and just says, preach the gospel to yourself every day. I was like looking for like this like, phrase. I'm like, who originally said this? Like, I, I, I don't know. Every, Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Luther, I mean, Keller, everyone, every man and woman has said this, hey, Christians, the secret to your like, success in your life is just preach the gospel to yourself daily. Like, do not forget Jesus and who he is and what he's done. Remember that Passover lamb. His blood was shed. Blood was applied. God passes over your sins. How do you experience revival? Man, you got to reminisce. Like, just sit in the gospel, who he is. That I deserve sin. I deserve hell, death. I deserve all of that. And God's like, I'm going to pass over your sins because of my blood was applied to your account. That is so beautiful. Uh, J.D. Greer says, you were so bad that Jesus had to die to save you. His love for you was so intense that he was glad to die to save you. He was glad to die to save you. This is, this is the gospel. Sit in the gospel. In 2 Chronicles 30, about the, the, about the Passover, it says this in verse 9. For if you return to the Lord, your brothers and your children will find compassion with their captors and return to this land. For the Lord your God is gracious and merciful and will not turn away his face from you if you return to him. Just in the middle of the north being taken captive by the Assyrians, God's like, do you not get it? God is gracious and merciful. Again, if you've been with us this whole time, people always assume that Old Testament is just full with like the angry wrath of God where it's just so much filled with grace and compassion. God's like, do you not get it? I'm filled with grace and mercy. If you return to the Lord, even if you're taken captive, you'll be brought back to your land. God promised them that. Listen, number five, celebrate the gospel. Another component of, of revival, and just expect this, is there will be mockers. 
there will be mockers. There will be those who just mock this. As soon as you start to draw near to God, people be like, what are you doing? Which should be a holy on me now. I remember like around 16 and like, I'm like starting to take my faith serious and I'd go to 24 hour fitness and play basketball because that's all I did. I had no life. I would just go to 24 hour fitness in Southern California and play basketball. I was one of the old men at 16. Like I was just one of the guys. And I remember just like, you know, one of the first things people always notice is like, why you don't cuss? Like, why don't you cuss? Right? That's always, the, why don't you cuss? I don't know if you've ever been like, right? I always notice that. I'm like, I don't know. I don't need to. I don't want, I just don't want to. Like there's other adjectives out there to use. But they're like, what are you, one of those Jesus freaks? And I'm like, I haven't been, that's like the 90s. Like, I remember thinking like, what? Anyways, it's just funny how like right when you take your faith serious, there will always be those people who want to like belittle that, who always want to put that down. It says this in 2 Chronicles 30, verse 10. It says, so the couriers went from city to city. This is what they did. They want to tell people about the Passover. They went from city to city through the country of Ephraim and Manasseh, as far as Zebulun. But they laughed them to scorn and mocked them. So in 2 Chronicles 30, Hezekiah's like, yo, tell everyone to celebrate the Passover. Tell everyone to celebrate the fact that God has uh, applied uh, his blood to our sins that were, were forgiven. Tell everyone about this. And people are just mocking them. And this is just, this is just a byproduct of, of God doing a work in someone's life. This is a byproduct of revival. In 2 Peter 3.3, 3, Peter says, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. As soon as you say, Jesus, I'm yours, there will always be those going, really? I know you. I know the true you. That's not you. This is just a phase. This is not a real thing. This is not a genuine revival in your life. Be ready for that. Be ready for people to mock and say, this is just, we've, we, we've all seen people go through phases like this before. I'm going to wait it out. You go, no. I'm in. I'm all in. There will always be mockers. Be ready for that. That's a part of revival. And a big picture, that's a part of revival in your own life in a small picture. You guys with me? Be ready. Jesus like, hey, if they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. There's always going to be mockers. There's always going to be that. Okay? But this is when you double down and say, no, no, no. This is not a phase. This is a lifestyle. This is not a phase. I've been saved by the grace of Jesus. Listen, there will always be mockers. Number seven is this. There's devoted prayer. Are you guys are good? You're good. Okay, here we go. Second Chronicles 30, verse 18. Here's what happens. There's devoted prayer from beginning to end of this whole thing. Second Chronicles 30, verse 18. Listen to this. It says, Hezekiah prayed for them saying, may the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. I want you to imagine this. This is revival is happening. People are coming to God. There was a way in which you had to wash and kind of consecrate yourselves, just understand the context. There's like this Jewish tradition, or biblically speaking, of just cleanliness in some ways. And basically, they had to wash and clean themselves. They're not doing it right. And he's like, God, even though they're not doing the, the law the way you wrote and intended, they're coming to you with a pure heart. God, would you just forgive them? And I love how it says, and the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people. The idea is this. What is God looking for? What is he looking for? Is he looking for everything to be right and perfect before you come to him? Or is he just looking for you to come to him? Because it says this in Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and uncontrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The problem so often is that people get this backwards. They, they, they think it's something else. He's like, no, God's like, I just want a broken heart. Do you come to me with a broken heart? The people were coming to God and Hezekiah's praying for them. God, even though they're not doing this maybe the way they should, they're coming to you genuinely. Would you heal them? And God's like, of course. I, it's not about the sacrifice. It's not about, the, it's not about that. It's about the broken and contrite heart. This is still how God wants us to come to him. God's like, I just, is this genuine? 
Are you just doing this to check the box? Like, what is this? And I just love how Hezekiah goes down as like this intercessory prayer. He's praying for others during the revival. God, heal them. We'll see him pray in just a moment as well. Hezekiah has three different prayers that are so beautiful that we have to spend time in. But I, I just love this. There's prayer throughout revival. Listen, before and after and during every great work of God, there's always prayer. There has never been revival. Do you get this? There's never been revival on earth that hasn't began with or continued with on in prayer. There's always been prayer. There's always been people, not just like prayer, like, oh God, bring her, like uniquely praying, set apart, like God, just do something different. There has to be prayer. Uh, Samuel Chadwick said this, prayers turn ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. Prayer just does something different. Prayers for us, God, I, I don't want to just know what you say, but I want you to get it deep within me. Prayer allows God to just like, yes, I want to massage that into your very fibers of your being. I, this, there's never been a work of God without prayer. Listen, if we want to experience revival, there has to be prayer. By the way, again, don't forget the beginning of this. It's just taking the ordinary things God has given us and intensifying them. That's revival. The ordinary things intensified. There is devoted prayer. Here's one of the last things. Okay, you guys okay? I think you're okay. In these many chapters about revival, the last thing, number eight, is this. There was giving extravagantly. It says this in 2 Chronicles 31. It says, Hezekiah commanded them to prepare the chambers in the house of the Lord, and they prepared them, and they faithfully brought in the contributions, the tithes, and the dedicated things. Here's the thing. Um, again, if you guys notice, and this is not necessarily a good thing, we don't really talk a lot about giving like, hey, if they end, give. I don't think this year I've mentioned it, sadly. I don't think that's actually a good thing. I, I really don't. I know a lot of times churches, sadly, have always um, emphasized giving in such a way that maybe it's rubbed people the wrong way. And I think that here, maybe a danger for us is like to an extreme, we avoid that. I actually don't think that's a good thing. I think that when you've been touched by the beauty and grace of Jesus, there's a side of it like, God, you've been so generous. How can I not be generous back? I'll say this. I'm so thankful. You guys are incredible. Look at our, our church. It does not make sense. You guys are so incredibly generous. It is unbelievable. And my thing is, I don't necessarily want to do it at the end. or what My thing is like, Jesus, would you just motivate hearts to give generously? Because this is what happens. Revival happens when people give willingly. Give cheerfully. Give out of just this heart of like, God, you've been so good, I'm going to give. It doesn't mean we avoid the topic, which maybe I'm guilty of, and that's not okay. But it's one of those things where like a part of just God moving and working is like, you know what? Why would I not give? Think about this. I've benefited from someone else giving. Their time, their money, their energy. I've benefited from that a lot. When I was a little kid, growing up in the church and going to Sunday school and eating the crackers, someone gave for those crackers. Like my whole life, like we've been, gen- we've been benefiting from other people's generosity our whole lives. And now we get to participate in that as adults. Now we say, God, you've been so good. God, so love. What does God, what does love do? God, so love he, that's the idea of giving. You so love, you give. God's like, I gave. This is what they did. It actually says in the verses before this, there's not enough room, not enough space. Not enough, there's too much food. There's too much giving. There's too much going on. It's like, we don't have enough. Build bigger ones. It's just unbelievable. This is part of revival. It ends this in 2 Chronicles 31. It says, Thus Hezekiah did throughout all Judah, and he did what was good and right and faithful before the Lord his God, and every work that he undertook in the service of the house of God, in accordance with the law and the commandments, seeking his God, he did with all his heart and prospered. Dude, Hezekiah again. It just goes down as a beast. This guy is set apart. Everything, he just prospered. You'll see next week how pride crept in, but he still repented. He just goes down as a good king. Awesome, set apart. But here's what I want to make sure we, we understand. These are elements of revival. We cannot manipulate the heart of God. We agree, right? I cannot force God into revival. But I do think there's heart postures God is looking for. 
I think there's things that God's like, yes, a genuine, authentic worship. Like this trusting me with all of your heart, remove, repent of sin. There's certain things that like just when God does something, he pours out his spirit in that way. But I want to make sure I'm really clear. You got to understand that Hezekiah, part of a great revival, despite that all around him, there's war and chaos. Like understand this, revival is always met with opposition. This is so important. If you again say, I'm going to follow Jesus, it's Jesus being baptized in Matthew 4. And you hear the Father from heaven say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What happened right after? He goes into the wilderness for 40 days, 40 nights being tempted by Satan. Like right after this great commissioning for Jesus, like he's baptized, his ministry begins, then immediate temptation for 40 days. Immediately the enemy is trying to barter with Jesus. If you just bow down and worship me, I'll give you all these things that you can see. Immediately Satan is trying to tempt him, test him. He's immediately speaking lies to him. The point I bring up is as soon as you're like, God, you're doing something in me, just be ready for opposition. I want to throw out this because I want you to see this. In 2 Kings 18 verse 7, it says this about Hezekiah. He rebelled against the king of Assyria and would not serve him. We're actually told in 2 Chronicles 32, um, we'll put the verse up here, but I'll just explain it. In 2 Chronicles 32, when he was surrounded by Assyria, Hezekiah and his brilliance built uh, this tunnel that connected Jerusalem, like the inner city with the walls, to a spring of water. And so the spring of water supplied them with water. Because a lot of times, you think about this in ancient battles, you surround your enemy until they run out of food and water. Hezekiah is getting ready for that. He's smart. He's thinking ahead. He builds this like tunnel and to, to the spring. This is called Hezekiah's tunnel. Yo, this is sick. You can go there and see this tunnel. It's so cool. Um, well, we have, I can't see anything. We have pictures, maybe. But uh, we have better ones. I don't know. Yeah, good. I, I love this. When we go to Israel, you'll see this. But this is, this is so cool. This is history. You can see Hezekiah's tunnel. You can see this guy surrounded by the Assyrians. And he's like, we got to tap into that spring. we got to tap into that water of life. Let's tap in. Surrounded. He's thinking ahead. He's surrounded by the enemy. But here's what I want to make sure you understand. They're, they go hard after him. Uh, the king of Assyria, he just sends different person after different person to preach to him and saying, uh, this is not going to work. You're going to die. Stop trusting in God. I want you just to hear a couple of these accusations against the king. It's 2 Kings 18 verse 23. It says, the man speaking to King Hezekiah says, therefore, I urge you, give pledge to my master, the king of Assyria, and I'll give you 2,000 horses. Here's what's going on. Just pledge to my master, you'll serve him, and I'll give you what you want. This is what happens to Jesus again in, in the wilderness. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give you these kingdoms. Take this easy way. I love this. The enemy didn't really want to have a fight. He just wanted to pledge. This is our enemy. We have an enemy. He doesn't really want to fight. He knows how that's going to go. Just wants to pledge. And he's, and he's actually throwing out these, these terms to him. I, look at verse 25, 2 Kings 18, 25. Um, he's now saying, look, look, the Lord said to me, go up against this land and destroy it. In some ways, he's not wrong. Do you remember this idea with Micah? God is sending judgment upon Israel and Judah. He's like, yo, do you understand that God spoke to me to destroy you? Okay, that's either a mixture of a lie and truth. Like probably actually, according to a lot of the prophecies, to go destroy them. And it's also a lie because we know how this is going to play out. But it's just fascinating that the enemy does that. Just mix truths with lies. He's speaking these over him. We'll put up another verse. Has, uh, 2 Kings 18.30. He says, he now speaks to the people in Jerusalem, this man, this ambassador of the king of Assyria. He says, do not listen to Hezekiah when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered his land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? And then he goes on this list of all these gods that failed the other lands. And I, and I love this because he's going, um, he misunderstands the power of our God. And he goes, don't listen to Hezekiah. He's misleading you. When he says, trust in the Lord, no, no, that will lead to nowhere. Every God has fallen in every land. And this is where that guy gets it wrong, but not this God. 
but he notices he's just throwing out accusation and lies. And listen, this is what the enemy does. How can I put fear into the heart of God's people? That's what he's doing. How can I put fear into the heart of God's people? How can I throw out a mixture of truth and lies? What will stick? What will land? And this is what he's doing. That's what we're told in, in uh, Revelation 12.10. Satan's called the accuser of our brothers. Satan goes around just accusing, belittling, lying. And that's why this term of Jesus, the advocate with the Father. Jesus is the advocate. But I want you to see Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, he's sending this messenger. He's threatening him. And I want to, I'll just kind of bring it here. This freaks out Hezekiah. He runs to Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, in Isaiah 36 through 38. You can read this. He runs to Isaiah, and here's what Isaiah says to him in 2 Kings 19. Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him so that he shall hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I will make him, Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, fall by the sword in his own land. This is what the Lord, this is why Isaiah says, hey, don't fear, don't fear. Do not listen to the accusations of the enemy. Don't listen to those lies. Don't listen. I'm going to put a spirit within him. It's going to confuse him. He's going to go back home to the land, and he's going to die by the sword. It ends with that. In 2 Kings 19.37, it says, his sons, Sennacherib, his sons struck him down with the sword. Exactly what God said. He's going to die by the sword. He, he dies by the sword at his son's hands. The reason I want us to see this whole picture is whenever, again, you try to say, Lord, I'm all in. I'm, going to, I'm for you. I'm going to fight. You're always met with opposition. So Isaiah, though, smart, or sorry, Hezekiah smartly runs to Isaiah and says, help, I need help. Isaiah gives him this word. The enemy still throwing out accusations. And I'm just going to end with Hezekiah's prayer. This is what I want to do. I want to get to this. Hezekiah prays to God because he's just tired of the enemy saying, I'm going to destroy you. I'm going to destroy you. This revival's in vain. Don't trust in God. You're the man who's known for trusting in God. Don't trust in God. Here's how it ends. 2 Kings 19, verse 14. Hezekiah gets this letter from the king of Assyria. He received the letter from the hand of the messengers, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord and spread the letter before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and says, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the king of Assyria, have laid waste the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, our God, save us. Please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone." Obviously, does this not sound like a man who's afraid? There's, a, there's fear. And what does he do? He goes, God, look at this letter I got. Take it. Deliver us. Save us. This one author, I love what he says. Patterson says, as a child bringing his broken toy to his father for repair, so Hezekiah laid the issue in God's sight for resolution. I love that. He, can I tell you this, guys? That when fear overwhelms you, just like Hezekiah, he brings the letter and lays it before the Lord. And he says, Lord, here it is. Here's the problem before me. I love that. Imagine that he literally takes the letter and goes, God, this is what's in front of me. This is overwhelming. And notice he reminds God, there's no one like you. Here's the problem. Here's what's going on. Here's what they have done. But I trust you, and I'm asking you, save us. He pleads. He makes it really clear. Save us, for you alone have all the glory. If you notice this prayer, there's so much we can learn from this prayer. It is so beautiful. I'm going to put this up here. Last thing, I swear. Uh, one author named Tony Merida, he looks at this prayer and he broke it down to just describe this guy. Remember, the word that describes Hezekiah is this word trust. He trusted, he trusted. And here's the prayer, the T. He takes it before the Lord. Or he recognizes the greatness of God, the you. He loads the problem to God. See, he seeks the help of God. He says, save us. And he treasures God's glory. This is the idea. I love this idea of prayer. Lord, I'm just going to take it to you. 
I'm going to bring it to you. I'm going to recognize there is no one like you. I love the unloading the problem. Here's the problem. Here's the problem. And here's my request. Save. Save. I need you to show up. And you know what, God? I'm, I'm also going to bookend this. There's no one like you. You're a God of all glory. There's so much beauty in this prayer. And God delivers him. God spares him. The reason why I'm showing all this is if you begin to seek God, there will be opposition from the enemy. He will throw out lies and accusations, a mixture of truth and lies. There will always be opposition. And I beg you to do what Hezekiah does. He throws the problem to God and is like, God, I trust you. I need you. Here's the problem. Show up. And God shows up and delivers him. Sennacherib dies. Historically speaking, biblically speaking, this goes down in history. He dies by his son's hands. That's how he dies. Historically, biblically, his sons killed him. That's how Sennacherib dies, just like God said. My point is this. I would love for there to be a revival in our hearts individually and in a bigger picture way. Let me, let me explain, though. If there's going to be a revival, there's going to be opposition. There's going to be the enemy lying, throwing out lies, and I'll say, do not believe them. Bring it to the Lord. Amen? Listen, trust him. Look to him. Run to him. Hezekiah goes down as a beast of a man. Next week, we'll see his downfall and then repentance. Let's pray. <laughs> Lord, we just want to say thank you. There is no one like you. As Hezekiah, Lord, just ran to you and threw out his problem to you, God, that's what we do. Lord, I just know that everyone in this room, there is just different opposition. There are different things going on. And Lord, I just ask Jesus that you would speak, that you would move, that we would trust you, Lord. God, that this would not be theory anymore. That we not read about revival and go, that was so cool for them then. But Lord, we ask for a revival today. God, we ask for you to move in our lives. So thank you for everyone in this room, Jesus. We look to you. We ask God that you'd remind us of who it is you are and what you've done. And Jesus, we just surrender this time in your precious name. Amen.